learn when you're being sold to, but sometimes you want to be sold to. And it can even be okay if you are aware of that so that you're not going to be taken in a direction you don't understand. Hey, humans! humans. Welcome to Demystifying Science, where we have the Flossians try to understand your species, and sometimes you try to understand ours. Today we are looking at Earth's online evolution, its past, present, and future. Like all ecosystems, the community that's emerging on the internet requires a diversity of species to be functionally optimal. And that's threatened by the big tech monoculture that's emerging on Earth these days. So, to figure out where that's going, we gotta go back to where it all started. Obviously, this takes us straight to the 1960s U.S. Pentagon. The Department of Defense wants its engineers to invent a new kind of communications network. One that could allow computers all over the country to speak to each other. Some say the DOD was motivated to increase researchers' access to computing resources. But others suggest the U.S. government was interested in developing a communications network that could resist a Soviet attack. In the 1960s, communication networks were vulnerable to large-scale attacks mostly because they ran point-to-point. This was usually accomplished through a central switchboard, which was the only point wired to all terminals in a given network. So if someone like the Soviet Union destroyed a critical node, like the switchboard for the U.S. government, it would have caused unmitigated chaos. So the best minds of the U.S. government applied themselves to the projects and theorized a literally bomb-proof strategy. The Intergalactic Computing Network. It was finally called ARPANET when they finally invented it, and the key innovation of the internet was that two computers on the network could exchange information without a direct connection between them. Instead, information was sent between users through a network of redundant, delocalized routers. If a router went offline, no problem. The network would simply shift its routing path based on the nodes that remained. This first generation of the internet was exclusively the domain of a handful of researchers. Very quickly, though, early users ran into a problem that's been there ever since. How do you find what you're looking for? Back in the day, they solved this pretty simply, with a pen and paper map, which allowed users to determine the address of the computer they wanted to connect with. As internet use was adopted outside of the academic world, the diversity of content on the net increased. People sent each other letters through electronic mail, transferred files. There were even Usenet groups, bulletin boards that functioned like some kind of proto-social media. Then, in 1990, a little more than two decades after ARPANET came online, Tim Berners-Lee invented the next big thing, the piece of the puzzle that allowed for the modern day. He invented the web page and the web browser and called this system the World Wide Web. The web is what allowed people to create websites that could be connected to one another through hyperlinks. And this took the problem of organization first encountered on the ARPANET and turned it up to, I don't know, a lot. Actually, I have the numbers right here. It went from one web page on the World Wide Web in December of 1990 to 1.7 billion in 2019. That's a lot of web pages. The World Wide Web and all those web pages could be considered as the second generation of the internet. But it had the exact same problem as the first generation. How do you find what you're looking for? Well, you index it. And a bunch of companies popped up to do just that. Yahoo, originally called Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web, came online in 1994, when the whole of the web contained only 3,000 websites. And AltaVista started in 1995, Ask Jeeves 1996, and then the protagonist of our whole story, Google, came online in 1998. 
And at the time, there was just over 2 million websites on the whole World Wide Web. To make a long story short, Google won that competition. The company had an algorithm that could index large amounts of websites, evaluate their quality, and serve them to users in a fraction of a second. Today, searching for something like, how does Google search work, gives 8.1 billion results in just over half a second. At this point, Google's indexed over 130 trillion web pages and conducts more than 90% of all the searches that happen on your planet. It's the fifth richest corporation in the world, and there's this huge question on everybody's mind. What next? Google can help you find everything you could ever want to find on the internet. But it turns out it's not very good at helping you figure out what you don't know or at helping you find places that illuminate phenomena just beyond your field of view. So what follows is a conversation with Evan Balin, someone who has spent nearly 17 years getting websites to the top of Google search. And with this conversation, we're opening up a whole line of investigations into the future of the internet. This means everything from search to info warfare, to cryptocurrency, data privacy, and social media. We want to know as much as we can about the forces, past and present, that are shaping the information age. Our conversation with Evan explored a few main themes. The fundamental principles on which Google is built, the problems that have come from the algorithm, and the cascading failure of trust on Earth right now. Now what shook out from our conversation was that while there's no magic solution to all of your problems, there are many ways to responsibly push the river and challenge the status quo. If economic markets alone cannot be expected to build the best possible world, what exactly can take their place? That is an excellent question. Faith in moral institutions like the church is at an all-time low, and humans seem to have a deep uncertainty about the definition of objective morality. It courses through all of the earthling buzz. The weakened economy of spirit that's taken hold in the wake of Earth's hyper-rational awakening has shaken moral and ethical chains that were once secured by ardent religious faith. It's unlikely that you'll find the meaning of life on Google anytime soon, and no one wants to have an old church tell it to them either. So what's the next generation of meaning-making machinery, human? What? In the meantime, how are you, the internet-surfing hairless ape, going to face or embrace big tech supergods? How will you evaluate the quality of reports you recover, and can your methods be passed on to others? Let us know what you think about this in the comment section. Tell us your solutions. And subscribe so you don't miss any future investigations. Enjoy the conversation, humans. Yep. the internet some people might say that that's amazing <laughs> it's a lot of responsibility it is does it keep you up at night it, it does um, mostly because I don't have as much control as I would like you know it's like Google was programmed to operate on its own and learn through AI and what it has become is not the exact thing that I would do, but it's not so bad either. It's pretty ingenious. So, yeah. 
So you feel like Google's kind of built itself? No, I think people have programmed Google, but then the Google search results are typically not manually altered, uh, particularly for commercial things. I don't know um, if they would be altered for things that felt dangerous or things that have to do with um, uh, public safety or something like that. But people have put a ton of time and effort into the machine learning that makes Google choose certain pages for search results. And although they didn't do a very good job, well, they did a much better job than most people or myself would have done, but they really did not do a good job of protecting against uh, the spam that people would naturally try to throw at them uh, for uh, until about 2010. But since then, it's progressively gotten better and more relevant. So I have to say I'm a fan nowadays. But you weren't at the beginning? I wasn't, no. I used to view it like an aristocracy. I, I would switch between the metaphor of oligarchy and aristocracy, <laughs> where the few had the power and the rich got richer because large companies uh, would always pop up at the top of search results. It was either large companies or spammers. Um, it was whoever projected or showed Google's uh, robots that they had the most links from other websites, those hy you know hypertext links from other websites, Whoever had the most within a given search category or around a certain keyword showed up at the top. That was the way um, the founders of Google ingeniously organized the web in 1998 in, at Stanford when they first conceived of the idea of the Google search engine. But it was uh, quickly taken advantage of by um, professional spammers and, and small-time spammers, and then large companies just benefited because they get publicity, which leads to links. Um, every day. But there's still kind of a situation where the big companies are getting to the top of Google search, right? Yes, there is. And that's because big companies um, still have a lot of links and links are still a reasonably big part of Google's algorithm, but that has been changing. So whereas I was far more skeptical of Google years ago, in the last few years, I found that if we're going to stay with the metaphor of, you know, um, ocracy or whatever, whatever the, um, um, the word is, uh, this is more like an infotocracy than an aristocracy like it used to be, where if you follow some organizational principles that Google makes pretty clear with placing the words that you want to rank for in what's known as the title tag of your page, and you have the most interesting information or the most helpful information that keeps people on the site the longest, generally, you have a pretty good shot of ranking. So I think that's been a positive change. So you think this has to do with the fact that Google and the searchers have the same interests? Yes, I do. I think Google is motivated by money. It's a public company with a duty to its shareholders. And uh, Google makes the most money. And I'm talking about Google, specifically the search engine part of the alphabet, you know, larger umbrella business when people find exactly what they're looking for and kind of say to themselves subconsciously, wow, that was like a utility, like water or electricity. I don't even have to think. I know if I go to Google, I'm going to get a satisfying, relevant answer. It's a very powerful thing. Uh, I mean, it is as powerful as saying, I know when I go to my, the, my sink tap, I'm going to get water. It's pretty amazing. You're, you're just going to reflexively go to your sink when you need that. So I think that the interests are indeed aligned there.
It's fascinating that you compare it to water. We're having we're, we're having some problems with our water pump system. I don't know if you can hear it in the background. Mm, but no. it's fascinating that you compare Google to a public utility like that because I feel like when humans first started thinking about the internet, it was something that was going to break the pattern of everything that had happened before. And right now, it seems like search has become something that is almost mundane. Hmm. It's not a path to searching for something exquisite or exotic. It's a path to finding the most centrally agreed upon piece of information. Hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about your statement because um, my first instinct is to say that I agree, but Google in the last few years has been rewarding niche expertise and in a way is a bit more democratic, hmm. but I can't, I can't say that I fully disagree with what you just said because the people that can, the, the companies that can hire uh, SEO companies like mine or have really great internal SEO folks um, are just kind of doing the right thing and they're doing content, not because they're really inspired, but because that they, they know that it's going to get them to rank higher and they make more sales. And so we are essentially seeing lots of the same companies for years at a time at the top of the search results. Um, I guess I'm just thinking about the fact that people search more specifically with more words in their string of keyword, their keyword string. Um, Every five years or so, a study comes out showing that often from Google itself. And um, it shows people are getting more specific. And Google needs pages to serve up people that type in highly specific, like eight-word searches. And there is an opportunity to rank for small niche businesses or, in the case of just knowledge-based uh, things, there's an opportunity to rank. It is not undemocratic and closed off, but it is way easier if you're a business with a lot of money for, for certain. Um, I would say YouTube, another Google-owned or Alphabet-owned business, is way bigger problem in terms of what you, the point I think you're making. Can you elaborate? Yes. YouTube, for anyone that uh, uses it a lot. Never heard of it. <laughs> Video sharing site, largest in the United States within the, the, the um, Earth. I don't know. If, have you guys been to Earth? Not yet. We're on our way. Uh, oh, it's a pretty interesting place. There's there's some great things about it. We've heard good things. Oh. <laughs> so YouTube keeps you browsing basically the same types of videos and doesn't really suggest things that are outside of your directly stated interests that, that well. And when it does, it's usually the same videos over and over that, that it, I guess, has tested and, and feels are popular. Um, so there's not a great opportunity with all the content on YouTube, and there's some amazing content on YouTube. It's very difficult to find it. I mean, it, it feels like that, um, you know, that, that rule that basically says in systems of uh, production, it's like a small percentage of people that end up getting the greatest share of attention, or I guess it counts for products as well. Like the Pareto distribution. Yes, thank you, the Pareto distribution. 
um, where just a tiny percentage of content creators get far and away uh, the lion's share of the views. And while I don't think there's anything, I mean, that is a natural um, thing. I do think that it's too lumped uh, into like, I don't know, 50 or 100 creators that, that get so much. It's similar to wealth inequality in a way. Um, and it and seems like the consumers of the media would benefit from some injection of change to this algorithm. On the YouTube side, yes, it really does. I suppose sometimes I think the people at YouTube, are they just saying, well, people are spending a ton of time on YouTube. I guess it's fine. Right. If so, I think they're being short-sighted. They are being correct in making as much money as possible, um, I would say, but they're being short-sighted in that there's a long game there with ultimately trusting the source of media. And, you know, we, we as people think about things like that, like, um, you know, if, if YouTube sort of gets closer to what I think TikTok does, which is almost shameless, where they just show you the most interesting moment of like a longer, uh, you know, filmed event or whatever, just the moment that like someone plays a prank on them and, and the person screams and it's just like five seconds or 10 seconds long. It's, it literally is addictive. It's like they just, there hasn't been enough, um, I think, uh, conclusive scientific studies to cause there to be regulation of it is actually addictive for kids and adults too. But if YouTube goes that direction, um, as they sort of are with just trying to keep your attention, and it, it ultimately makes people dissociate more and probably contributes to people not getting outside or at least thinking more to help themselves uh, get further in the world, I do think ultimately it's not going to work out well for them. Maybe they they're, you know, they'll have cash in their shares by then or something like that. But I actually believe in podcasts a lot more mm. as a discovery medium. So we love podcasts too, but we notice a kind of similar effect over at Spotify. Hmm. Hmm. Where we have Spotify space, you know, it's a special, special deal. <laughs> cool. Wow. Yeah. There's a Spotify in every solar system, something like it. <laughs> but it's the same problem where. A few of the podcasts drift to the top, and mm -hmm. it's really hard to find new material. Same with music. I'm a huge Earth Music fan, and I have a really hard time discovering new music through these big aggregators that ultimately have access to, to enormous libraries. But it's yeah. very difficult to find new material. They just keep feeding you the same material every day. That's interesting. I, I totally agree. Where, when Spotify is your, your search engine of choice for podcasts, I think, you know, I've thought about this a lot, but I feel like for actually discovering something new, you need some sort of community forum. To some degree, Reddit could be a place where, you know, someone's like, hey, have you heard of this? But even then, how do you find the right subreddit? Um, and, and not all interests are, I think, properly represented. Uh, you know, Reddit is skewed in, uh, to certain demographics. Um, and, uh, I actually find some of my best recommendations are just groups of, you know, like, uh, in-person groups that I'm a part of where people say, yeah, I've been doing this thing lately, or I've heard of this thing lately. And sometimes there's large, um, boards for like the national, uh, you know, when these groups have chapters in States and then they have like a national board that brings all the chapters together and you can post and say, what do people recommend for 
sometimes you do well there. But I do think there is a um, content finding problem with all of this AI and all this computing power we have. I do agree that um, it's nice to give people the best of the best, the cream of the cream. And it's certainly going to keep them hooked for a while because it's there for a reason, typically. Um, but discovery of new interesting things is a problem that is not being solved very well um, by the internet, I would say. I'd say the last time I felt that way was Pandora like 10 years ago. Hmm. Well, it's fascinating that you say that it's not being solved on the internet because I kind of feel mm -hmm. the same way. There's, If you go to Google and you search for something like podcasts or even YouTube channels, the same big channels always come up. There's a, there's a cross-linking that happens where it's only the big channels that are getting recognition, only the podcasts that come from big studios or have some kind of institutional supports that are getting recognition. Mm -hmm. And there's not really the availability of ideas that fall outside of some very narrow scope of what is in vogue right now. But it sounds like what he's saying is that it's on the end user to take responsibility for obtaining their content, something mm. like that, maybe. It, it, well, I am saying that, but I, I'm sorry, can, I re, can you remind me of, I know one of you is Mickey, but your, your names? I'm Mickey. I'm Quinn. You're Mickey. Finn? Quinn. 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 Quinn, excuse me. I, I, I knew it was Quinn. Okay. Um, so I, yeah, I appreciate what Mickey said, but I still think what Quinn is saying is a problem because if you search Google for the best podcasts right now, you're going to get a bunch of SEO lists. And the way that people generate these lists is when you already have a popular like media website of some sort, and you decide you're gonna do a top 10 type of post, um, which you, you wanna rank for somebody looking for exactly that, best podcast 2021 might be the Google search keyword or whatever, um, then you usually do research and you see what other people are saying. And then you say, oh, I've seen that. It's like the equivalent of um, recommending the Queen's Gambit on Netflix or something. It's like, yeah, everybody knows that's a great show. It's, it's popular for a reason, it is a great show, but it's not very original to recommend that. Mm -hmm. um, and so you are probably going to get 10 results that are not adding that much to the conversation. And you know, somebody slaved away and created like a, you know, top 50 podcast you probably haven't heard of or something like that, but it's probably buried because it's on a smaller blog that isn't just doing the right SEO things and sort of referencing material that's already there. Um, but I have hope about that. The reason I have hope about that is because at my company, we do something, we, we try to take advantage of the exact same thing. Hmm. But oftentimes the clients who, who come to us, they're not the largest in their sphere. So they, if they post an unoriginal list, they'll probably show up, you know, let's say they're a mid-sized company on page three, number 25 or something like that. That's not going to be very helpful. No one will see it. So we have to think a little harder. So we say, let's actually find useful podcasts that people haven't heard of. Let's scour not just lists, but ask recommendations and bring something truly original. And lo and behold, I find that we outrank the big companies just by being more original because people, just like the three of us here, are sick of seeing uh, the same um, you know, self-referential -re large list of the exact same results. 
So being original is being rewarded in that people appreciate it and they spend a longer time and Google recognizes that as a ranking signal. So for that reason, I get the sense that while we're not there yet, um, more people will start catching on to what my company has caught on to and we'll start writing stuff that's original for profit. I mean, not for not for maybe the more noble reason, but at least for um, the economic benefits that come from having just better content. That's encouraging. Uh, but at this point, how do people find that content? I mean... Do you think other search engines could pop up to compete with Google whoa. and take over that niche? Hmm. I don't. Um, and I'm, it kind of makes me sad to say that because I am just a, such a strong believer in competition and the ability for uh, young uh, upstart companies to, who, who really believe that things should be a little bit different and bring fresh ideas to be able to do that. But Google owns, I don't even know how many data centers, the fact that you can search for anything that you can think of and Google will scour trillions and trillions of web pages in milliseconds is because of the level of computing power they have. They've invested in, I, I, I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands of buildings filled with servers in order to be as fast as they are. And I, a search engine could pop up, but it would be very slow and it would not have the computing power to process as many pages. And uh, I fear people would not use it. Mm. I mean, Theoretically, Bing is a competitor, but it's not really a competitor. The only search share it has is from people that don't know how to change their default search engine when they buy a Microsoft computer, um, I would so say. So it's just too well established. It's like you're not going to see a competitor to the American Medical Association or something. Right. It's too well established, and there, to, to my knowledge, there is no such thing as monopoly or antitrust laws right now. I know that's not technically true, but I've not heard of an antitrust case since like Netscape in 1998 or whatever. Um, maybe I'm just not that aware, but I, I feel like Google does, makes it impossible to compete. I think that there is some rumblings of an antitrust case against Google right now, against Alphabet right now, because they have basically a lion's share of everything on the internet from search to email to but I think yes. at worst case scenario, they would have search broken into its own company and it would still completely dominate the market of search. Well, that's mostly the most profitable wing of Google, right? Where even if you break Google up, Alphabet up into its component parts, Google search is still going to be a behemoth. You can't really compete with Google search. Right. Um, it is possible that in some point in the future, I mean, I don't know exactly how government works, but it's possible that um, Google would have to share some of its computing power so that a search engine could compete under some sort of antitrust settlement. And perhaps, perhaps there is an analog in the whatever competition is allowed for, uh, for, in, for phone and, and internet cable, like cable type companies, um, because they just own the fiber and the ground, like these major companies like AT&T and Verizon and stuff like that. And I think sometimes they they have to allow competitors in. Usually they don't. They pretty much have a monopoly too in certain areas, but there's at least something possible. I have heard of companies besides the major five or whatever, uh, smaller companies. That they must just be renting. I'm pretty sure um, they're renting fiber or cable or whatever from others and um, or from the big companies. And I doubt the big companies would just allow that unless they were forced to. 
just a guess, but there's got to be some way for uh, a search engine to compete with Google eventually, because that would be a good thing. I actually think people would welcome that because uh, although Google does its job very well, there's going to be people, there's going to be like aliens uh, like you guys that want to um, see what's happening in niche interest areas and you know, and that would just be good for for everybody, I think. So I, th I think people would be open to it. Well, yeah, that's interesting that you say about these niche interest areas, because I feel like Google is not a niche service provider. It provides exactly what you want when you want it. You can type in a string, you can get your answer, you walk away, you're perfectly happy. Uh -huh. But there are these pieces missing from the discourse. There's no way to find niche content. There's no way to find niche communities. And on one hand, that's good because you don't want to flood places with users or listeners or customers that aren't necessarily out and looking for them. But you do need to have some way of being able to find those things as a human or an alien searching on Google, or searching on the internet. And mm. right now you say, you know, you have these communities where you have people that get together and they can give recommendations, but what if you don't have that community? What if you're just by yourself? What if there's a pandemic and you can't hang out with your friends? <laughs> right, imagine that would be crazy. Mm. Um, well, I think it's interesting what you're saying because the niche um, content that many people are after is findable on Google. There's probably a website and therefore it's probably findable on Google. But all of the burden is on people to think of that unique search. And people's brains don't typically work that way. Some people uh, proactively think, what would be interesting content that I I want to see or I want to learn about, and it might be something that, you know, you see in the world that you're reminded of, you, you know, decide that you're going to learn about spelunking or, you know, see what the world hopscotch champion looks like or something like that. Um, that is possible, but the passive recommendation-based um, model of here's something you'd be interested in um, I think is not being taken advantage of properly. And there's a few companies that have the data to do that, that have interest data. Facebook uh, probably has the most interest data and Google has intent data. Like what do you look for? Which is sort of like interest. Um, so those are two very powerful companies that have the data, but I fear that they're using that data more to give you more of what you're definitely going to like rather than to push your boundaries. Because if you don't like something, you know, they probably just make less money in, in the model of recommending things you, you don't like. But I do think it's in their interest to serve you tailored advertisements. Maybe somehow that becomes, um, may, maybe that becomes good if, if there's inexpensive advertising that, that niche websites and content producers can do to find exactly the types of folks um, like that. But I don't see that data being used that way uh, right now. Well, it'd be interesting to see a third button added to the mix because you usually like something or you don't like it. And if you like it, you're going to just keep seeing more of that video. And right. Especially on the music servers, it's like, well, I like this song, but I've heard it 20 times this week. So it'd be interesting to have a button like, I like this, 
but I've had enough of it. And I like diverse, like a diversity button, right? More yeah. like this, but not this. And that seems to be a missing feature right now on Earth. Yeah, I agree. And um, I mentioned it before, Pandora. Um, I don't know if you have it on your planet or if you used it a while ago back when it was really popular. We did, did yeah, definitely, yeah. But even worse, same problem, even worse. Just like the same 20, 100 songs, whatever, on loop. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't have that experience. Maybe I, I, I'm going to have to guess that. This was a long time planet, ago, sorry. A long time ago, okay. It's possible that uh, you know people that are more into music wouldn't have been as fascinated. I usually like listen to pop music and stuff, so I, I already have like the same songs that are on the radio that were on the radio back when I was listening to the radio in my head, and so it felt very original. The recommendations I got, and for me, Pandora is the pinnacle of passive recommendation, mm. um, uh, quote unquote, search or whatever you want to call it, content recommendation. I have. Not seen anything since that felt really good. And I, I would take random recommendation. That would be fine as well. And then I would really like to be able to train the algorithm. I think there's a, a hunger for that. And I often wonder um, why bit, not enough businesses do that. There, there are, by the way, if you search for like movie or book recommendation engines, there are some out there, but they're not well-funded. They're slow. Um, and I don't find that they're that targeted. I think that's kind of a holy grail is to legitimately serve you content that you're interested in after you've trained it for an hour or something like that. And I think it would just take a really creative um, and you know mathematically sound kind of algorithm taking into account your what you've approved and what people like you who have approved that ended up liking, that sort of thing. That requires a constant feeding of the algorithm back and forth though, right? Where you have a service where people are rating things and as they watch new things that are suggested, they rate them, and then right. everything gets passed back and forth. It's almost like a social network based solely around the recommendation of content, mm -hmm. which is missing right now. You're exactly right, because social networks aren't based around the discovery of new things. There isn't a social network that's based on this idea of let's discover something new. Social mm -hmm. networks are based on the idea that you can connect to people that share your views. And this has led to a whole other conundrum on Earth, it seems like. This stark polarization of communities where people with fringe ideas consolidate their ideas and attract others and you have extreme radicalization. And Well, because people are organizing around political and social ideas rather than around the quality of art. And it becomes a lifestyle, right? Mm. Where your political and conspiratorial minded affinities become a sort of entertainment lifestyle. It's what you do for fun. Just troll on the internet with your buddies in whatever group you've been isolated into. This is kind of interesting. I wonder what you hear. Yeah, that will, is, will make that is a problem. Um, I think to myself, if there was a content recommendation engine, and I think while it's not an engine, Reddit maybe is similar. It, well, Reddit absolutely has that going on where there's hive mind and certain subreddits where everybody just believes the same thing. You're, you're literally like censored if you try to say anything that is your opinion that's different, even if you're not, you know, trying to be a rabble rouser or whatever, or, or, you know, stir the pot. Um, but I think when things 
get into the category of identity, then um, it's like people's minds uh, are so attracted to it that it, it can uh, radicalize you more easily. And I, I guess what I'm wondering to myself out loud without having an answer is whether if people found content that was interesting to them, whether it would become an identity group to them. It's like, we, we know the really strong identity groups. If you really uh, liked some sort of uh, niche um, cultural topics, you know, social topic, uh, would that form an identity and then cause polarization? Or is there a category of, of um, content? Is there a content type? Or, well, uh, it's interesting be because I think perhaps in the past on Earth, there were identities that were consolidated tribally, but they were based around forms of entertainment like music or movies mm -hmm. that were a little more innocuous. But now uh -huh. you have people finding entertainment in politics and in conspiratorial action and activism. And so this is a somewhat more, let's say, active and perhaps potentially corrosive form of tribalism that mm -hmm. you don't get so much with something like movies or music. Uh, thank you. That That is exactly, I appreciate that, Mickey, the, uh, what I was talking about. Something makes, um, you know, people who are enthusiastic about jazz music all coming together more innocuous and less likely to become a negative than people that are getting together for either religious or political uh, reasons, because somehow those things often get to survival. I don't know how they get there, but somehow like the random people who, who um, are elected to public office get connected with, uh, you know, whether you are gonna be treated fairly. I mean, like early childhood ideas that often have a tremendous amount of control over our lives. Am I treated fairly? Uh, am I cared about? Am I included? Um, and then, you know, sometimes to the level of like, will I be wiped out or made made totally poor or, um, you know, have my opportunities taken away? So all these extremes happen over there. Is there, is music safer? Do we think that could be radicalized? That's, mm. so I immediately thought about modern art on earth where to me it seems like there's this drive of people that get together to appreciate some kind of art, whether it's jazz or music or painting or... Jazz or music. Jazz or music, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> Quinn's not a jazz fan, if you can tell. Uh, some, some. But the point is, is that when you get people together over some kind of discipline, there is a push to expand the frontier of that discipline, to push the envelope, to make it into something stranger, to make it into something more difficult to engage in, in order to make it more exclusive. Like to build walls around it. To build walls mm -hmm. around it that bar entry to the common listener, right? Well, because that brings order to the situation. It sort of orders your tribe against the chaos of everything else you have a hierarchical striation of people who like entry-level jazz and then people who like experimental acid jazz. And who are the true jazz listeners? Not the entry-level Kenny G jazzers. They're the <laughs> ones that are listening to the really crazy stuff, you know? 
Interesting. And I imagine that that's a kind of radicalism. It's not a radicalism on moral levels the way that it is for politics, right? Politics is a moral survival radicalism, us versus them, almost warfare. But an appreciation of the right kind of jazz is a radicalization of what is beautiful, of what is meaningful. And that's, that seems less directly harmful. There's no dystopian stories of people who grow to like extremely niche art and then the society falls apart, you know? Well, the jazzers aren't storming the Capitol building or anything like that. <laughs> um, so you're right, it does seem less harmful. It is exclusive. That seems to be maybe the worst thing it is. Uh, that's not always a bad thing, but it is definitely excluding people um, when you feel like you have a higher understanding of jazz or wine or art. And it separates people. It, it's it's a, like a form of culture that um, tightens your bond with uh, certain others and separates you. And, and perhaps that is a natural human behavior that feels good because of the tightening the bond with certain others part. It's not, it's not isolating, um, but it is separating. Um, so perhaps that is okay. Uh, it probably is okay. Um, so maybe well, it's we, fundamental we need- for sure. It seems fundamental to humans. And I think that social media is less invested and Google is less invested in manipulating people coming together over art specifically because it's hard to affect real world change by manipulating that. There's a lot of profit in manipulating how people vote, in manipulating how they spend their money, in manipulating what kind of content they pay attention to. But mm-hmm. with something like music, it's like, well, listen to whatever you want. Who cares? You want to be exclusive? Be exclusive. It's not going to it's not going to well, topple civilizations probably. It seems maybe. like exclusion is fundamental, is what I'm trying to say. That from the time that the humans came out of the water and started walking around and building tribes, they hung out in caves, let's say. Last I remember. We didn't visit for like 5, 10,000 years, so we're on our way back. But it seems like the idea of a cave or even a hut is to exclude the rest of nature so that you have a safe place to dwell. And fundamentally, almost everything humans do in the political sphere is about making a safe place for your tribe. Mm. So it seems like this isn't going to go away. But No, the, it's the manipulation that is dangerous, right? Mm. The manipulation building building walls around people are supporting these walls that lead to more chaos in the end. Walls that they don't necessarily see, right? Like, do people know that things on the front page of Google have been manipulated into being there? I would say effectively no. Hmm. They may have some awareness. Because I would say even I effectively don't. And like this has been like my life's work is um, understanding how to play very closely to Google's algorithm to rank at the top. Um, When I search for something on Google, I totally kind of subconsciously know what's going to happen. I'm going to get a lot of the same types of, of sites, but I generally trust it. I don't say to myself, I'm going to need to think independently about these results. Look at you know, 100 or 200 and, you know, go around to different pages 
and then decide which one I'm going to look at, which might theoretically be a good way of treating ideas or something, you know, not, not get too married to the first ones given to you or the ones recommended by um, a certain publication just because it's given. Um, so I would say people just do reflexively trust Google. And that's, that's the reason why, you know, what I do, search engine optimization is so powerful. And it also does limit information. So I think the point that you made, Quinn, before is that as long as it's not manipulated, um, you know, it can be okay, these natural systems we're talking about. I would say the same for Google. If Google starts to be further manipulated where um, it's not democratic and certain results are allowed and certain results are not allowed, that is where it can get very dangerous because someone is making that decision. And do you trust that person? Have you interviewed them to say that they have your ideologies and your best interests at heart? Of course not. Uh, so I think so trust is at the core of this. Um, yes, absolutely. We have to feel, you know, and it has been cast into doubt to some degree recently, but I do think that Google still has pretty high trust. I, I think YouTube has low trust, hmm. um, and Facebook has low trust and Twitter has low trust. Um, general, you know, in terms of percentage of people that trust, I think a high percentage of people if I had to guess, I'd say like 80% or something, generally feel that Google is not trying to brainwash them or influence their minds heavily. Whereas I do think most people would say that about the other, you know, the social platforms. Google is not a social platform. So it seems like that's the perfect storm is the situation where you have monolithic distributors, search engines, uh, you know, compilers like YouTube that also have lost public trust. That's an interesting perfect storm where folks have nothing left to turn to and there's no chance of an alternative because the physical infrastructure is just too enormous. Well, so I can imagine that, let's say, because Evan, you said that there's very little trust in any platform really except for Google, right? At this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If trust in Google fails or falters, what then? That could be a good thing. Hmm. Uh, Can you say more? Yeah. We have become reliant on like five websites. I mean, most people just basically spend most of their time on like five websites. We're again in another Pareto distribution. Um, and it might be good to look at that and see what alternatives are there. I think from the the corporation's perspective, the best thing they can do to keep themselves relevant since every, you know, empire falls, every business eventually fails. Um, the best thing they can do is continue to keep the quality of their product high, which is, which is harder to do in a large company. But, you know, Amazon's, the, the speed of the delivery and the selection is so good. It's hard for me to picture, you know, not using it a lot. Sometimes I'll I'll buy like a local honey, you know, directly from the e-commerce website from the individual who who does the honey farming and stuff and feel good about myself or whatever. But I buy most of my stuff on Amazon because they have really, really created a competitive advantage in speed and selection. But Amazon um, has a weird thing, if I can interrupt you for a moment, please, where yeah. there is this strangeness in purchasing something on Amazon because a lot of the reviews are fake, right? 
It's a major problem. They have they are a little bit where Google was in 2007 to 10, where a lot of the uh, search results were fake. They were mm. literally written in some other country from other articles that are, were actually good, legitimate articles. They were just like the words were paraphrased and rearranged by machines. They were called spam blogs or splogs, and they were all over the place. I don't know how many people remember it because it's been over 10 years since they were eradicated. But Google had a major problem with spam that was preventing the quality, and they really cracked down on it, did a great job. Amazon has that problem, too, uh, with exactly what you're saying, the fake reviews. If you can't trust the reviews, then Amazon quickly loses its appeal. And so I think that that's kind of what you're saying about these top five websites or top five companies that everybody turns to. They have hegemony right now, but that might not be an eternal state. I hope it's not. Sometimes things need to burn down and uh, restart. It's like the only thing I can think of that is like an overall positive about the pandemic, for instance, which is just negative in so many ways. I mean, we we know c- certain positives, you know, getting to spend more time at home, all the stuff. But largely, there's just so much destruction done by the the things around the pandemic and, and the way people have responded to it and, and stuff like that. But Sometimes the thing that makes me feel better is just thinking that this is kind of a burning down of the system and of many different systems that we're used to, and it can produce creativity and um, stir people from, um, you know, malaise or uh, just them having gotten used to the way things are and not needing to be productive or creative. There is going to be a lot of creativity that comes out of this, and sometimes newness can be a good thing. Um, And uh, I think it's just that thought. I would say the same thing about uh, uh, if we were to find that we were being too controlled, which some people already feel, uh, but I'd say most people probably don't, by these five corporations that are, you know, social and search websites that um, control so much of our attention, have so much data on us, and we were to seek something new, and we were you know, like our our government needs to allow us to be able to see things, needs to do antitrust laws if they're applicable and allow free markets to operate. And as long as that happens, um, I think there could be something interesting and new and and more entrepreneurship, which I always think is a good thing. I love that. Do you worry that Google will become difficult to get results to the top of? Do you ever worry that getting something to the top of Google will become much more difficult if they change their parameters or they're more selective or they're more centralized? More manual control. Mm. I don't because I have been doing this now since 2004, so 17 years or so, and nothing Google's ever done has disrupted what I do because I... Although it was easier back then to just spam Google and publish tons of pages with the keywords you want to rank for in them, and that worked pretty well, and you would purchase links since links were always so important. I found early on that the kind of harder way to to do something that is exactly what Google wanted all along but just couldn't get to until 2010 or so is to create phenomenal content in in niche areas that people search. 
So if you just think of everything people would search that would be valuable for you to rank for, which is probably thousands of things in any business you may be in or any pursuit that you you know want to have some influence over, and then you just create the best piece of content targeting each of those thousands of things. I know that's a lot. It could take years. That has always worked. In 2004, that worked. You might get beaten out by a spammer who's just you know bought 10,000 links or something, but You'd, you'd probably still be on the first page. And today you'd be jammed at number one doing that. And that is basically the, the main strategy that I advocate and my company does. It doesn't seem like that's ever going to go away. There seems to be something naturally valuable about that, that Google has been brilliant enough to codify into its algorithm. Uh, but the notion of thinking of everything an audience is interested in, and then you know subdividing that into exactly how they would think about it, and then giving them a very satisfying answer. It's a huge amount of work and it's a very valuable thing that I think will always be valuable to Google for a very long time to come, in my opinion. Um, and uh, I don't know, I just, I feel like you'd find a way to make money from that either through an email distribution or social media or whatever, no matter what. So you talk about in your book that this could be something like 1500 articles that link you back that are necessary. Was it like 5,000? Or five, how many was it? It was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> I don't remember. I'm not sure which book you're referring to. But. It was outsmarting Google, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, do you think that it's possible that someone will develop NLPs to generate these kind of articles that could hack this system? They've already done that. That's been around for a long time. Is this the splogs you were talking about? Splogs are the lowest quality form of NLP. It's like, is that NLP or is it like a basic or a somewhat sophisticated Perl script or something like that back then that was doing that? Um, th so there is plenty of that out there. And I've had people, sophisticated people uh, that I know, tell me that one day natural language processing is going to be able to write just as good content as humans. It's probably true one day. Um, but I'm not worried about it being anytime soon, the next 15, 20 years, uh, because there's so many nuances to genuinely answering a question. And I think what at least my what I've seen of, of NLP that that uh, purpose to create content that is going to rank highly on Google is it just references other sources and it ultimately gives you something you could find in many other places. It's not like it's really thinking hard about how to take the best of what's around, format it into a more easily digestible format. I mean, that's a valuable thing to do. That's innovating on art or whatever you want to call it. That That's, you know, you can call that original even um, copying well enough and putting it into an appealing enough format. I've I've just never seen it. I've seen good. I have not seen excellent. And I'm in a world of excellence where that wins out. Somebody wants to compare a bunch of products, put it into a neat comparison chart, give it a one to five rating, give it a list of the most important features, simple check marks with a drop shadow behind them that are uh, appealing to the eye. I mean, there's a lot that goes into the psychology of appealing to people and satisfying their curiosity and making them say, I don't need to go to another page. I just found exactly what I was looking for. That's not there yet, and that would be that would be very challenging to do. I, I don't I don't ever doubt that it will happen, um, because eventually, like you know, God, no, we won't even need human bodies. Eventually, our minds can be like ported over someplace. But um, but I, I, I'm not worried about it in my career span. 
what you said about this format that gives people the sense of it being where the buck stops. I don't need to go anywhere else. This looks good. Mm. These pieces of information satisfy me. That seems to be what people want from Google. Mm -hmm. And so it's driving Google to become something more like this listing of yes, no responses or top 10 lists or top five lists. It's a mechanism for aggregating the content of the internet to answer these queries, right? Whether it's a query of the best computer to buy or the best pair of socks or the best machine shop, whatever, right? This is what Google is there for. It is to answer these queries. But Google can't answer what is the right thing to do? What is moral? What is ethical? What is the difference between moral and ethical? What is the meaning of life? And that seems like the questions that people need the most amount of help with. How to live a good life. Google can't give you that. But I assume that Earthlings want to be able to get that from Google. They do. They would like to get everything from Google if they could. I mean, they'd like, they'd like to get everything that meets their needs. And seeking meaning is one of the primary needs that humans have once their, their basic needs are satisfied. So I agree. Um, and I think that they will find a dearth of, um, of really good content there. And that's where, uh, if, you know, in my opinion, podcasts have been the best thing out there for that. The, the, in the world of um, intellectual discussion, uh, discussion of uh, ideas and uh, things of, of meaning, podcasts and you know and YouTube videos, if if you find the right ones, since often they're they're one and the same, uh, are the only place that I've really seen that. Apart from, of course, old fashioned books, uh, but but to be able to share in them socially, I think is is kind of what creates far additional meaning. So um, that's the best that I've seen so far. And I've seen really good development there, you know, including this show. That's, I think that's the right spirit for that sort of need. So it seems like you're saying, yes, those things could be missing, but that's a market. If that is a missing niche, or if that's a niche that needs to be filled, then, then a market can move in and take hold of that. Do you think that markets can solve all of these existential questions? Because mm. you can't always Oof. make money off of it, right? Can really useful, good information always be commercialized? Um, well, Google would say so because <laughs> they're making money even if you ask what like 100 plus you know, 5,020 is because they have your attention, you're on the screen and then, you know, you could be shown an ad for a calculator app or something like that. So they have found a pretty ingenious way, which is one of the reasons they're one of the biggest companies in the world um, to monetize information. Most of the time you can, but only if you're at scale where you, you know, you, you can draw the advertisers who will actually pay for things they can't see that may or may not be valuable, like people doing addition on Google. Um, but there are probably things outside of that, that it's much harder to monetize. Big companies can monetize a lot 
well, particularly, particularly Google, actually, because they are so closely associated with um, all manner of seeking information and researching. So it brings up this natural question, which is like, okay, if people are marketing these ideas, which are really useful, how do you separate out their marketing interests from their real intentions? Like if you come across an idea, how can you tell that it's not just trying to sell you something versus this person is genuinely trying to improve the information landscape? That's a very interesting question. And I have found, I, I, I wish I had a great answer, but I have found that my sense of questioning um, has needed to be, uh, you know, sharpened quite a bit, um, especially during the time of the pandemic when there's like literally people in the medical community that seem to be motivated politically because they're saying different things and they're, you know, it could be two Ivy educated doctors that like deeply disagree about things that seem like there should be a scientific, uh, you know, clarity about. Um, so I think skepticism and individual uh, thinking are skills that should be taught. I, that's uh, my, my big picture answer is I'm certainly going to make sure that my son knows that. That's one of the most important things I'll, I'll pass on to him. Many important things, including just being there, loving him, all that stuff. But, um, but also allowing him to think for himself because I don't know of a way that, that – um, you can really know if someone's trying to sell you something. There's some, there's some really tricky stuff out there where people make you feel certain ways. And then, you know, there's a, a pitch somewhere in there or somewhere later down the road. Um, and there are many people that don't do that too. And so you just kind of have to have your eyes open and you're going to be naive and make mistakes in life. And then eventually get to a place where you feel you can read that without having lost too much trust. But as you can see, we get into a deeper human and philosophical type of problem there um, with with how you should be oriented towards in information. Um, and you can't help that to a large degree too. It has to do with like early childhood events to some degree and what you've learned throughout your life as well. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, what do you guys think about that? Because it's a very deep question. I was going to actually ask before we go into the specifics, do you have any stories <clears throat> of when... Hold on. Excuse me. <laughs> do you have any stories of when you were really taken by something and then you found that there was a pitch somewhere in there hmm i do i'm just trying to think about what i can uh, share sure. publicly i definitely have have a lot of them well i think it can be I'll, uh, maybe I'll try to answer this way. It could be confusing when you're part of, let's say, a, a religious organization that both gives gives you community, gives you feelings, uh, you know, connects you with feelings of spir spirituality, gives you messaging that is valuable to you and helps you feel closer to higher entities. And yet you have to give money to be a part of it. And they may ask you for money a lot. And that's, that's a confusing situation, depending on how concerned you are about being taken advantage of or how traumatized you are in that area. Um, some people don't mind at all and say that's how this religious organization, you know, uh, can stay afloat and grow and all the stuff that we want. And that's perfectly reasonable. 
other people would would distrust it. Um, but I, I actually think about this sometimes in the context of therapy, where you have just about the most personal relationship you could ever have, where you are talking about things that like you might not tell you know, your family, like your partner, it's like your deepest stuff you're sharing. And yet it's a paid relationship. And perhaps you might say there's an incentive for it to be a long paid relationship so that the person can live and there's nothing wrong with that. So they can make money. Um, so money ends up in very personal areas of our lives uh, and becomes a tricky subject quite a bit. And it, for some people, it, it's more bothersome than than others. But I think you kind of have to accept that um, value, even if it's not in the form of money, becomes a part of um, the majority of human relationships. Um, and um, especially if they're not family relationships, there seems to be hopefully an exception in most cases with family. Um, well, that's, but, that's really interesting because it makes you wonder if, in addition to good parenting, if some of these practices could be capitalized on by private educators. So if institutions, even primary educators, start to offer information analysis from a very early age, they might gain a market advantage. And perhaps you would see some of that trickle down to the public education. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about public education on Earth but, or in your country. And but, this is related to... Well, the... is there a role for humans learning how to assess this information and learning how to think clearly and recognize marketing incentives hidden as information? To, like, see the pitch, basically, more yeah. clearly. Yeah, I also find that interesting, and it, it, I think it would be so valuable to teach this. This is that comment that... Most people have had someone say to them in conversation at some point in their lives, like, I wish school taught me things like how to read a map or how to manage money or invest or something like that. I think um, teaching things like meditation and how to question and think independently, I, th I think that's a goal of certain schools, probably, unfortunately, more private schools than public schools. Right. And I have heard of uh, some private schools where they really are trying to make you question everything you hear. I think it's a very powerful, positive thing um, to in encourage in people. Do you think um, that you undermine your authority as a parent if you teach your kid to question everything, though? Yes, and I think that that's good. Huh. I don't think you, as long as you, you continue to have, represent that you hold space in a safe way, that, you know, uh, daddy, you know, and I, I'm in the world of dada and mama and daddy and stuff like that uh, with, with my two-year-old right now. Uh, that, you know, daddy always does a certain thing at a certain time or tends to when we go out to dinner, these are the ways that he acts or something like that. Um, and that's a, that becomes a safe space, you know, kind of space to be held in um, for a child. And I think, you know, I'm going to be very proud of my son the first time I tell him something I, I believe, and then he questions it, even though it will probably bother me because I'll be like, I, I'm wise. I've spent years thinking of it. He will, uh, I'll be proud of him, whether I think he's right or not, because um, I don't know, that would almost be a sign of, of exactly the type of parenting that I hope um, to, uh, to participate in um, and, and to give him. So 
No, I don't think I'd feel undermined. And I do think you can create a lot of safety um, and security while still teaching questioning. I wonder if that can be taken too far. I agree that there's a great deal of necessity for questioning, especially because, you know, even Alva Flossians, humans, we all live in a world where you can't take things at face value, right? Everybody has hidden motivations, whether there's a pitch for money somewhere in there, or mm -hmm. it's a pitch for control, or it's a pitch for something that they want from you, right? And it's really important to be able to go through the world and to identify charlatans. This is not a new problem. There's an ancient word for this. A charlatan did not just show up with the advent of SEO and people gaming the front page of Google with whatever it is that they're trying to sell you. This is an old problem that people are kind of coming awake to for the first time now that it's such a central problem. Mm -hmm. Because there's these things that they trusted in, and now they're awakening to the fact that, well, wait a second, I thought that this was trustworthy, and now I have to spend all my time questioning it, and it's very, very, very difficult. Hmm. Um, I don't know if this is the direction you're going, but I, I'm, it's making me think of the fact that there's a much deeper psychological question here of like when is it like you should be okay you should learn when you're being sold to but sometimes you want to be sold to mm. and sometimes you don't know when you're being sold to because your entire disposition is you feel like close to people that want to talk to you or something I feel like I've known people like that in my life um, that just they buy into sales because uh, even sales of things they don't need because they feel some community in it. Some, there's a, a moment of connection with a salesperson. There may be an ongoing relationship. Maybe you get to complain to that person later and that's important or you have control over the salesperson. There's a lot of psychology that can go into this ultimately, mm. into sales. Um, and it can even be okay if you are aware of that so that you're, you know, you're not going to be taken in a direction you don't understand and get filled with confusion. I think that's most of the problem. But that, there we go into a deeper thing of thinking clearly again and understanding what your your psyche, your unconscious um, is inclined towards and, and you know, learning to check yourself. And even if you indulge what your psyche wants to do, at least being aware of it so that you're not confused. I, I always feel like confusion is, is one of the biggest enemies that tends to not be good at all. Um, I think that's right. And it takes us back to the fundamental human attribute of trying to wall off confusion, wall off the chaos. It's really interesting that mm -hmm. a lot of this organization that's occurring is based on trying to wall that off, but also maintaining trust that it's somehow be remaining objective. Uh, well, so somebody pointed out the other day of just how much content there is that's on YouTube or the internet. I mean, YouTube is an easy thing to point to, and you've kind of mentioned, Evan, that the YouTube algorithm leaves something to be desired. But there's something like 300 hours of content uploaded every minute to YouTube. That's a lot of chaos to try to order. Yeah, the challenge of ordering that to prevent it from just being garbage is enormous. And so the way that you prevent confusion from happening is you give people what they can handle. So I feel like we've taken a lot of your time. And I did wanted you, to... Oh, did you have any closing thoughts on that, Evan? You, you seemed like you were kind of... You had somewhere <laughs> to go from there. Well, 
it sounded like you were returning and uh, and almost saying it's not so bad to the concept of showing people a lot of the things that they are already interested in. So they're not confused with too many choice, uh, too many choices or something like that. Uh, I suppose the only thing I would say is that we can all become overwhelmed and confused quickly and always have some confusion that we're hopefully trying to work out or hopefully are conscious of, but it's nice to have the opportunity to explore new things. We always needed a, a balance between, um, you know, order and safety and um, adventure and chaos. Um, so uh, I think that the idea of, of balance uh, plays in here. There is a use for addictive loops of TikTok silliness, and there is use for diving deep into intellectual topics and getting recommended things that you hadn't heard of that um, teach you something new and stretch your boundaries a little bit. Um, we just need more of the latter. Agreed. So I wanted to ask you one last question. Mm -hmm. So in your human opinion, what's the biggest threat to your species over the next century or so? Um, I would say it's unrecognized trauma. Wow. The reason I say that is because when I think of, you know, peop some people, some individual people have a lot of power and do bad things. Okay. Lots of people come to mind when, when we say that different people for, uh, come to mind, uh, depending on who you are and what you believe. Uh, almost always when someone does something that is, you know, harmful on a large scale, uh, you know, if it can be helped, if it's not one thing where there's bad choices in both directions, it's because they don't recognize that they have really strong needs that originate, um, you know, early on. And if you at least recognize it and, you know, something bad happened to you and you can just be really pissed about it for a while, years maybe, then you tend to get over it and then you can have normal highs and lows. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's human, you know, it's like being happy is not the goal. The goal is to process all your emotions and have those emotions and then, you know, kind of be at whatever frequency you naturally are emotionally. Mm -hmm. But I think so many people don't even recognize really that there is a psyche. Like this is almost like some silly Freudian thing that, you know, psychologists talk about rather than um, potentially more motivating than anything you're consciously aware of in your life. Like your psyche probably is the thing that directs your actions more than anything you're aware of actually directs your actions. I think the more people that are aware of that, the better. And there are tons of people that would never even listen to me complete that sentence because it would threaten them so much <laughs> and um, are often, you know, people that make bad decisions and hurt others. So when I hear the word threat, I often think of that because you can usually find that inside a bad actor or someone that's acting in a way that harms others, which I generally call bad when you're harming, uh, you know, directly harming at least others um, or knowingly harming someone. So that's my answer. That's really interesting. It really reminds me of this topic we come across when we speak with earth scientists a lot, which is the idea that biology contains a fair dose of physical material actions like synapses and molecules but there's this whole other motivational i hate to use the word spiritual but you know these sort of 
behaviors that possess people, and they're very common. Desires. Desires. These very these various <laughs> natures, and science has a really hard time integrating that side of biology that's not purely material. They do. So it's interesting to hear you say that these subconscious spirits that possess people without their knowing are capable of threatening your species even. Yeah, I think it's the biggest threat. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think it like in enough time, you'll be able to see the biological grounding for all of it. I, I, I don't, I wouldn't use the word spiritual, but I like how, I like how you, you used it because it, it sometimes can just mean the unexplained when people say spiritual. Um, these are all things that many, many of them are like scientifically proven and, and that sort of thing. But also like, what does that even mean when I say that some <laughs> scientists agree on it? You know, I think we've learned to question that a lot, but I think, you know, I definitely feel these are, uh, I mean, provably physical phenomena where, uh, you know, the existence of a psyche and, um, cycles you stay in if you don't complete them in a healthy way when you're younger and, and a baby and, and a toddler and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, that's just something that I've, I've seen to be true. I've seen and known to be true uh, throughout my life uh, more than most other concepts. Maybe we could start a species wide therapy project when we get there. Get <laughs> oh boy. I'm in for that. Excellent. Well, those effects certainly have physical consequences. That's for sure. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us, Evan. It was wonderful. Thank you. Do you have anything that you yeah, want to plug? This... Yeah, where can people find you? Yeah. Um, well, you can always uh, search my name on Google, Evan Balin, B-A-I-L-Y-N. And um, yeah, my SEO company is First Page Sage. And um, I have a uh, podcast that I do that has nothing to do with SEO called <laughs> Thoughts and Feelings uh, that you can find on uh, YouTube or thoughtsfeelings.com where we just talk about interesting sociocultural topics and that's kind of uh, more my passion so there's some options cool we'll put it in the description thank you so much okay yeah, yeah. thank you guys bye thanks bye